In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the third Sunday of Lent. We are continuing in these 40 days of self-examination and of repentance. And you'll remember that we had this wonderful example of Abram and his call to self-examination and his facing temptation by the king of Sodom and of his uh, rejection in temptation and the promise then that the Lord gives him. You'll remember that the promise was that a great nation would rise from you and they would spend 400 years in slavery and then that he would lead them out into the promised land. This promise has now been fulfilled in the reading that we have this morning, Exodus chapter 3, at the beginning of the uh, promise being fulfilled in the calling of Moses, who is going to be the prophet that the Lord is going to use to fulfill this promise he made to Abram. You'll remember who Moses is. He is not the likely candidate to lead the people out. You remember that he had uh, been taken in by Pharaoh's family. You remember that he uh, murders a man and then he uh, runs away from justice. He is on the run. He goes into the Sinai desert. He finds refuge with this priest of Midian and he becomes a shepherd, which of course is a, a career, a lifestyle that is totally opposed to the people of Egypt and to Moses' upbringing by them. Uh, this is a lowly position where not only is he a shepherd, but he's a shepherd for his father-in-law, working for him. And in this uh, rejection, in this wandering in the wilderness, Moses, in caring for his father-in-law's flocks, uh, sees the burning bush and turns aside to the Lord. And this is a very important uh, moment in salvation history where uh, Moses has this choice and he makes a decision. He sees uh, the Lord, he sees his righteousness, his holiness, and he makes a decision to turn aside and to be face to face with God. We want to note about the mountain of God and where it is that Moses is. Again, he's in the Sinai Desert at the bottom of that peninsula. And the mountain of God, the Lord says, uh, is where they're going to bring the people back. It's where, when he leads the nation out of Israel, he's going to bring them back. Uh, but we get these two names for it. Here where he's on the western side of the mountain, we're given the name Horeb. And when he's on the eastern side of the mountain, when they return from Egypt, it gets called Sinai. These are two names for the same mountain. There seems to be a moon side, Horeb, and a sun side, Sinai. And we could probably talk a long time about what the Lord is teaching us about uh, these two sides of the mountain and the two places where the people of God go to dwell. But in either case, it's a holy place where God meets the people and where he gives them instruction first and foremost about himself. So the Lord really... Uh, lays out for Moses three very important things. Once he turns aside and he comes face to face, three very important things. The first very important thing is that God is holy. And this is something that we're very likely to forget. God is holy. And he is the kind of holiness like an intense fire uh, that can only be that. Uh, there's no way to put something near an intense fire and not have it be uh, either destroyed or completely consumed. That fire can go into the 
thing like a precious metal like gold. If there's no impurity, it can uh, dwell in it. Uh, But if there's any impurity, it's going to burn away. That's just the nature of fire. And this is the nature of God's holiness. His holiness is such that we can either have it dwell in us in purity, or it will destroy all those imperfections. And so he has Moses respond to that uh, purity, to that holiness, to that sacred nature of his holiness by removing his shoes, showing that it's a holy place, showing that this is a sacred, set aside in a clean place where Moses is going to go in. It's also a response of humility on Moses' part that he's willing to take his shoes off and show his subservience, his obedience to the Lord. So that's the first thing. The first thing is that God is holy. The second thing is that all that the Lord is going to do is out of his love for his people. He says, I've heard their cry. I know what it is that they're experiencing. Of course, we can't be surprised by this because he had told Abram 400 years before that this was going to happen. Uh, And so we really want to make clear uh, that distinction that the Lord knows what's going to happen. He knows what our response is, but that doesn't mean he caused it. We're not going to say the Lord caused the people to turn aside from him or caused them uh, in any way to sin. But he knew what the response of the people would be. He knew about this experience of slavery in, in Egypt. But it's out of his love that he is going to act. And this is a very important thing. We have to know that all the actions of God, all of his efforts on our behalf are out of his love. It's out of his nature that he acts in response to us. Then the third thing uh, that we uh, get clarified is uh, that we need to be focused on who God is. First, that he acts in love, but then we need to know really who he is. And Moses uh, first thinks that it's about him which is a very natural thing because we always think it's about us, right? And so uh, anytime the Lord says, go here and do this or do that, our first response is, let's talk about me for a minute, right? And so he says, let's talk about me. And the Lord could have talked about him, right? And said, "Uh, well, let's see, Uh, you are a murderer, uh, right? You're on the lam. Uh, You don't really have a home or a family and you've got a speech impediment. Look, if anybody came to Jesus the Good Shepherd to do ministry and they had those things on their references, would we hire them? It's doubtful, right? It's doubtful. But here is the person that the Lord chooses. And so the Lord doesn't even respond again to Moses' saying, look at my resume. He says, we're not looking at your resume. We're looking at my resume. You need to look at who I am because I'm the one who's doing it, right? So he says, you have to know who I am. He says, I will be with you and you will serve me on this mountain. And then Moses says, I need to know more about what to say. And he says, say, I am sent you. I am who I am. He's saying, I am the ground of all existence. And this is, um, if I may say, in direct contradiction to pretty much all of what's arisen in modern philosophy for the past 500 years. You remember a guy by the name of Rene Descartes who decided to engage in doubt and said, I think therefore I am. He got it confused. It is I am who is I am that is the ground of all existence and all knowledge. Exodus sets this out for us very clearly. This is where we get knowledge. This is where we get truth truth. This is the ground of all that we know. It is God himself, the creator who is, who is, who is. I am who I am. And this is the same title that Jesus uses for himself, right? He says, I am. 
And so this is a creator God who is the ground of all things. So we have to know this. We have to know that God is holy. We have to know that it's out of his love for his people that he acts. And we have to know that he is creator God on whom all existence is founded. And then we have a place where we can live our lives. We have a foundation upon which we can set security. But it's so tempting to look at other people too, isn't it? We want to look at our resume and then we want to look at other people's resumes. This is what the people do in the crowd with Jesus, right? They say, yeah, but look at these people who died in a really bad way. Didn't they do something wrong to deserve that? And so there uh, are these two very contemporary examples uh, that are mentioned in other contemporary histories uh, of these uh, tragic events. One where uh, Pontius Pilate, who of course is this uh, cruel uh, Roman overlord, a governor of uh, this region, uh, has um, become angry with some Judeans who are offering a sacrifice and he murders them and he sprinkles their blood. He is actually um, defiling the temple. And so they are, you know, just totally, uh, you know, upset about this. This is understandable. And this kind of practice just gets worse and worse under the Romans. And then there's this other example of this tower that's in the city of Jerusalem that falls and collapses on uh, a group of people and kills them. And this is, seems to be kind of human nature. The first one to say, yeah, but what about me? Am I really qualified to do this? And the second one is, didn't this bad thing happen because those people sinned? Right? When we read about tragedies in the paper, we see it on TV, don't we like to say, well, looks like maybe they weren't doing what they were supposed to do, right? It's our nature to say this person must have been engaging in some kind of sin. And Jesus takes a step back and he says, well, God's holy. None of you are holy. And so you're all deserving of uh, the same kind of death. Right. So sometimes we think, well, I'm not so bad. God's really great. And then there's some really bad people. And we like to kind of place ourselves, you know, pretty close to God. I'm doing okay, Right. And the Lord is saying, no, I am so holy, so transcendent, so magnificent that you can't really um, perceive my holiness. And then all people are um, deserving of death. We've all engaged in sin. We've all broken the commandments which is kind of the point of us reading the Ten Commandments, because we should read those ten and say, oops, 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 right? We haven't fulfilled any of them, and so we're deserving of death. And then the question is, well, what can we do about it? And it's really not what we can do about it again, as we hear the Lord say on the mountain, it's what he's going to do about it. So Jesus gives us a parable to talk to us about what it is that he's going to do about this fact that we're deserving of death. What's his response going to be? So he tells this parable where we have the owner of the vineyard and we have uh, the fruit tree, the fig tree that does not produce fruit, and we have the vine dresser. Clearly, this is uh, God the Father who is the owner of the vineyard, right? He is the owner of all creation. Everything belongs to him. And he is a uh, vineyard owner. He made creation to bear fruit. So if anybody's asking you, what's the purpose of life? It's found in this parable. He has made all things to bear fruit. What is fruit? Fruit is virtue, right? He is expecting us to respond to him with love. Right? Faith, hope, and love. These are the foundation of the Christian virtuous life. So the Lord has made creation. He's made us. He's placed us into this magnificent creation. He's expecting to receive fruit from his trees, from us. And that fruit is, first and foremost, love. Faith, hope, and love. And has he found it? No, he hasn't. 
He hasn't found us producing fruit. So what would be the response of any reasonable vineyard owner, right? That has a fruit tree that doesn't produce fruit. We all know it, right? We rip the tree out. It's just what we do. We're not going to let a fruit tree that doesn't produce fruit use the ground. And so who comes in and intercedes, right? It's our lawyer, our advocate, right? Our one advocate, Jesus Christ, the vine dresser. And he says, uh, the three years, right? The three years they have not produced. This is the, the life of Christ in ministry, right? His three years, like his three days. And he's saying, um, here is the holy time to come. Give me one more year. Give me one more season. I'm going to do two things. What does he do? He is going to make room. Right, he's going to dig around the base of the tree. This is what any good, uh, you know, person would do working in a garden. He's going to make room around the tree, and then he's going to put manure on it. Isn't that great? Remember, we're the tree, so we get to be dug around, and we get to be manured. Isn't that nice? So we participate in that digging around, right? We call that Lent. We call that repentance. We call that self-examination. We're removing any of those things that are keeping us from being able to have a well that's going to be able to hold that water, right? We don't have a way to hold the grace that the Lord would give us in Holy Communion and in prayer uh, because our lives are so filled and crowded with other things. And so the Lord is going to give us this time of Lent to dig the rest of that stuff away. So what are the things that are keeping us from holding grace what are the things that are keeping us from daily prayer and bible study there are things that are keeping us from doing it those things need to be removed that's the simplest message of lent isn't it anything that's keeping us from prayer and the reading of scripture has to be removed so that we can hold that grace and then of course what is the manure what is the food the food of course is baptism holy communion the practice of prayer through the guidance of reading scripture right that's the manure the food that the lord is going to place around us but we have to have that room to receive it and then of course we are going to receive that grace and we're going to bear the fruit of faith hope and love we're going to act in love and jesus gives a great example of the act in love and his healing of this woman who is disabled and of course, uh, we're going we're gonna to make this very quick, right? Because this is a very uh, quick point to make. The ruler of the synagogue is reading the Sabbath law in such a legalistic fashion that it removes all love, right? And this is a temptation that we all can face, right? And that's faced the church over and over again. People have wanted to hold the Sabbath to a kind of a place where we remove all love. And here's what Jesus does about the Sabbath. And he does it over and over again. He doesn't remove the Sabbath. He makes everyday Sabbath. Jesus doesn't remove the Sabbath. He makes everyday Sabbath. That is, every day is a day of rest in God. Every day is a day where we reflect upon him. Every day is a day of love where we do the work of God. Every day is become Sabbath day under the reign of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Every day is a day where we bear fruit. So he doesn't remove the Sabbath, he fulfills it, but he fulfills it in the most uh, explosive, generous, magnificent way where we show forth that love and faith. But the vine dresser digs and manures, and still sometimes we don't produce fruit, which is what St. Paul is addressing here in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 10, right? He, he notes what the people received, what the nation of Israel received, right? He says they received baptism, 
right? They crossed the Red Sea. They were under the cloud where the Lord was dealing with them. They received spiritual food from Christ himself. He makes that point. He says, if you're wondering who that rock was out of whom the water flowed, that was Jesus himself. So they received baptism and they received the holy food of holy communion. They received all that they needed. And what was their response to that? Sin. So he says, this is an example for us. We can receive all that we're supposed to have in grace. We can have that, that, that digging out. We can receive all of those good things. And we still cannot follow the example of others and in falling into sin. Right? So he says, we have to be aware. This was an example for us. When we're given an example, we need to follow it. Right? This is the school teacher who says, I wrote it on the board right? I wrote it on the chalkboard. You're supposed to know that, right? I wrote it twice. I wrote it three times. This is St. Paul saying the example of the nation of Israel was given to us. Are we going to be mindful of that example? And he says a couple of great things about it. He says, first of all, if you think that you you are standing, watch out. So sometimes we think, well, I'm not tempted by that. And I'm not tempted by this. Watch out, right? As soon as we start to think, I can't understand how some people could sin that way, watch out, right? Because what are we saying? I'm doing pretty great. I'm pretty strong. I can't even understand that sin. And what St. Paul is saying here is, take heed lest you fall because there is no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common. In other words, we're all tempted by the same stuff. This is why hearing confession is really boring. People think, oh, you must hear some really awful things, right? Some really um, awful details. Well, it's all the same. Sin is the same. And it's really boring. It's the same thing over and over again. I wanted that thing that didn't belong to me. I wanted to touch that thing that didn't belong to me. I wanted to take that that didn't belong to me. I wanted to eat something that I shouldn't have. I wanted to be intimate with somebody I shouldn't have. That's it. That's it. It's all kindergarten stuff, right? It's all keeping our hands to ourselves. It doesn't get any more interesting than that. It's common to all of us. So he says, what we need to know is that he is providing for us the way of escape. The way of escape. Which is the way. Who's that? Jesus. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He is the way. And so during this Lent, we have to recognize the fact that we are not qualified. That God is holy and he will provide all things through his love. The question is, when we find ourselves in this dry wilderness, will we turn aside to the burning bush? Will we turn aside to the light of Christ? Will we turn aside to his holiness? Will we turn aside to his love and faith and example? Will we turn aside to him? Will we turn aside to life? 